And as he's brought there and sold to, to uh, Potiphar, uh, we see that the word says that the Lord was with Joseph. And so he, here he is as a slave in the household of Potiphar. The Lord's there with him, and the Lord makes everything he does prosper. He just does well. So in Potiphar's house, it even says that Potiphar recognized that the Lord was with him. And so we, when we read our own scriptures where we use English words, we can lose a little bit there potentially because what it really says is that Potiphar recognized Jehovah was with him, which is fairly significant when you think about who Egyptians were and how people who followed Jehovah were so rare. Uh, even him knowing that it was Jehovah and recognizing it was Jehovah. So given the changes that Potiphar seeing with regard, he, he let Joseph become dominant over everything he owned and was responsible for that. And within the house, without of the house, so within Pharaoh's captain of the guard, of his bodyguard, here is Joseph has become the number two man in Potiphar's world. And Potiphar, it says, reached the point the only thing he had to worry about was what he wanted to eat that day. Now, Joseph, it says, was an attractive man, and Potiphar's wife began pursuing him. Uh, she wanted an illicit relationship with him, and Joseph's response is really good. He, he talks about the reality of the trust that was placed in him by Potiphar, but when he starts talking about how could I do this, he says, because it would be such an egregious sin against God. And so he is not unwilling to participate with her in that illicit relationship, but she kept at it. And one day when they're alone and the other people are out of the house, uh, she makes a physical grab for him, and he takes off and winds up leaving his cloak there as a result. And so she calls in all the servants that were outside and tells them this story that claiming Joseph had pursued her, um, wanting to have sport with her, making fun of her. And she kept the cloak and she kind of hung around waiting for Potiphar to come home and showed him the same thing. And the word says Potiphar was burning in anger toward Joseph as a result. And Potiphar threw him in jail. When Joseph went to jail, the Lord again went with him, was with him and prospered him to the point that the jailer put everything under Joseph's command and didn't even feel the need to supervise. And so we see Joseph moving further away from a good situation. Uh, it it's can't be easy. It's got to be frustrating. Um, we get to read these verses knowing the, child's, the stories from our childhood and look forward, but here's Joseph having to live through it. And yes, he's got the dream. I don't know, the scriptures don't tell us if he's thinking about the dream, but it would seem like kind of a hollow promise at this point uh, without some very strong faith in God. So let's go read Genesis chapter 40, verses 1 through 23. And I'll look for a volunteer to do that for us. Alan, go right ahead. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with his own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled, so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not, in, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossoms 
patch, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. The chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable. He said to Joseph, I also had a dream, and there were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Okay, so let's go back and work our way through this uh, account of what happened with Joseph, and then we've got a couple things I think we ought to talk about when we get get through that. But first of all, it says, after these things, in other words, next, you know, it's just like the next thing in the story um, in verse one, the cupbearer, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker um, who were under the king of Egypt, which we could say Pharaoh, offended him. Now, offending Pharaoh is not a good idea. Um, it will put you in an awkward spot, and certainly they were there, and we might think of these as potentially, you know, servants in the household, where do they fit in? Where both of these were typically positions considered to be a very high rank. Uh, the cupbearer was a security position. He was responsible with all of the potential palace coups and intrigues and all the things that might happen to make sure that uh, what the, the uh, Pharaoh was being given to drink was not only safe to drink, but good to drink. And so it was a it was a high position. The cupbearer typically had the ear of Pharaoh, just like later on we would see Nehemiah as the cupbearer, having the uh, ear of the king, and is able to go back to Jerusalem to help with rebuilding of the temple. Uh, so they're generally pretty influential positions. So too was the chief baker. We're in the same world of of uh, making sure the food is of high quality and safe. He was responsible for all that. It was an important position. These are not low positions. They're fairly high positions among the household servants of Pharaoh. And so in verse 2 it says, Pharaoh was furious. He was very angry with these two officials. We don't know why. We don't know what they did. Uh, what was it that set him off? Um, but regardless of what it was, um, he sent them to be in verse 3 in the confinement of the house of the captain of the bodyguard. Who is that? Potiphar. Potiphar. So here these folks are, and it's, we get a little bit more information about what it meant to have, be thrown into the jail by Potiphar. Uh, the chief security guard, the captain of the bodyguard, had his, within his own control, within his dominion, his household, he maintained a jail. And so it really was his jail that Joseph was in, and these men were placed in there with him. And the captain of the bodyguard in verse 4, Potiphar, put Joseph in charge of them. And that's really interesting considering where we've been. 
because it was the chief jailer that gave Joseph all the dominion in the prison that didn't feel the need to supervise him, that let him run with things because when, the, when he did his task, things prospered when you let Joseph take care of it. Now we have Potiphar coming back into the picture as the chief of the bodyguard and says, here's two prisoners and they're Joseph's to take care of, which may be very meaningful, may not be. I don't really know, but was it a softening of Pharaoh's anger, Pharaoh, of Potiphar's anger toward Joseph? I don't know. He might still have been just as angry, but still recognized, as they might say, which side of the bread the butter was on and said, well, if I leave them under Joseph's care, everything's going to be okay. Uh, when the king is upset, Pharaoh's upset, and he comes to Potiphar, apparently, as the chief of the bodyguard and says, you get these guys in prison, I've had enough of them. Um, you better do that well. He's already mad with, at them. If you don't take care of those prisoners properly and they're not properly confined and all the things that should be going on, you could be the next one in line to have him very angry with you. So when he gets these important prisoners, he goes and finds out where Joseph's at, and where he knew where Joseph's at, but took him to Joseph's care. And so here's, here's uh, Potiphar putting these two men under Joseph's direct care in verse 4. Um, and they were confined for some time. What does that mean? Well, it wasn't just a day or two. Some time had gone by. How much? We don't know. Some level of significance there in verse 4. And in verse 5, we see that both had a dream on the same night. And it says by the scriptures, they were separate in both content and interpretation. So here are these two men that uh, are linked in being under Pharaoh's anger in prison because of it. And they're now they're also linked. Some time's gone by, so it wasn't just the next day or so. Some time has gone by, and at the same night, they have a dream. And it's obviously of some significance. The next morning in verse 6, Joseph goes to see them, and he observed that they were dejected. They were downcast. They're, they're, it's clear by the way that their their uh, presence of their faces and so on that uh, they're sad. And so he just asked them, why are your faces so sad today? And they said, well, we had a dream and there's no one to interpret our dreams. So they, they knew there was something significant here, but they didn't know where to go to figure out what it meant to them. And Joseph makes a good, strong statement. Do not interpretations belong to Jehovah, belong to God. And so he's saying, hey, it's, it's God that interprets dreams. And so this is a testimony on Joseph's part for Jehovah, the God that he has been serving and that has been there blessing him. And what he does next says something, too, about how he sees himself and his relationship with God. Interpretation of dreams belongs to Jehovah. Tell it to me. What does that say about his understanding of his relationship to God? He's confident, um, at, at least enough to say that he's got some level of link with Jehovah, and so tell me, um, he is a path uh, that can bring Jehovah into this picture. We don't know if he was sure he was going to be able to interpret it or not, but clearly he thought that was a strong possibility. If not, absolutely sure. It just The scriptures just tell us, belongs to Jehovah, tell it to me. So he knew that he could be, at least potentially, if not certainly, in a place to represent Jehovah to these people, these two men, and help them understand their dream. So in verse 9, the chief cupbearer goes first, and he tells him the dream. In my dream were three branches. They, it almost sounds like he's describing what we would see today in time-lapse photography. He said they, they burst forth in buds and the blossoms and came out in ripe grapes in fairly quick timing, it sounds like. And he says, and Pharaoh's cup was placed in my hand. 
I took the grapes, I squeezed them into the cup, and put the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And so he describes what he sees in this dream. It relates to him, relates to his former position, and has him doing something that was part of his former role before something happened that uh, he had done that had made Pharaoh upset. In verse 12, Joseph doesn't seem to hesitate. Well, here's the interpret of your dream. Question mark. What just happened here? Okay, that's a little bit of an obscure question maybe. But Joseph, while he's hearing the dream, what's got to be going on between God and Joseph while that's happening? God is giving him the information directly while it's going on so Joseph can go ahead and pass it on to this man without hesitation, without concern for being correct or incorrect. How did that happen? We don't know. Um, We don't know if Joseph was hearing something or maybe hearing in his head, not with his ears. But somehow God is revealing this to him as he speaks. And so Joseph says, well, here's the interpretation uh, three branches are three days. And verse 13, he says, So within three days, Pharaoh's going to lift up your head and restore you to your office. You're going to be back doing what you did before. You're going to be taking care of keeping Pharaoh's cup full, placing it in his hand, and do it in the way that you were used to before you were thrown into this jail, into this prison. And so this is, this is fairly significant. Um, I'm sure the cupbearer is relieved to hear this interpretation. And Joseph uh, says, now there's only one thing I'm asking of you. Remember me. Keep me in mind when things go well with you. When you're back and you have the ear of Pharaoh, do me this kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh. Get me out of this house. So we get a little insight into how Joseph is taking this imprisonment. Um, He is being a good servant. He's prospering. He's doing what's asked of him. He's a reliable slave, if you will. Now he's an imprisoned slave. And outwardly everything's going fine. And I'm not saying inwardly he's not necessarily at peace. But he's certainly mindful of the injustice that's going on here. I was taken captive, kidnapped, it might say. I don't remember. What did your version say? I was stolen. stolen. And uh, so I'm, I, I was made to go here as a sta- slave. And even being in the prison, in verse 15, I haven't done anything to deserve this. It is interesting. He said, I came from the land of the Hebrews, which uh, certainly... Um, his family, Jacob, were very influential because of their massive holdings. But it's interesting that this idea of the Hebrews is continuing within the language and with the way Joseph speaks because, I mean, we would probably say, well, no, it's, it, at this point, it's the land of the Canaanites. You just happen to have a Hebrew section in there. But he says, it came from the land of the Hebrews. I've done nothing that deserved me to be in this pit or dungeon or jail. And so he he is not happy with the injustice that's been done to him. And so he's looking for, hey, you're going to be back talking to Pharaoh. Help me out here. I've just given you this correct interpretation of your dream. And so you will be there and remember me. Well, what do you suppose the chief baker is thinking at this point about his dream? Hey, this is working out all right. There's some similarities in our dreams. This was a this was exciting interpretation for my buddy the cupbearer. I don't know if they were friends. But the chief baker saw that it was a favorable interpretation. Hey, it's my turn. Let me tell you about my dream. So uh, he talks to Joseph and he says, I also saw in a dream. Uh, he said, Uh, I saw three baskets on my head of white bread. Now, I'm going to deviate here for a little bit. This was too interesting to not come back and talk about. Because when you go to the store, I don't know what you buy, 
But is there white bread available? Yeah, well, in this day, white bread could have meant something similar to what we might buy in the store as white bread. But I looked up, so what is it, what's going on with white bread? Why mention it's white bread? You know, why not mention, say it was, hey, it was really good, seven multigrains. No, it's white bread. Well, in this era, and even yet today, if you're going to make white wheat flour, which is what they probably were making, uh, you've got to separate the bran and the germ part of the wheat berry so that you're left just without those being a part of it because they will yellow the bread. They're, they're, they're a different color and so on. And this is all done as a part of the milling process even then. Um, before I got done, I read a long time about milling processes and how they've changed. And it was kind of fun, but not fun enough. I'm going to take all your time up with it. But they, they remove those layers and you get a white, whitish flour when you, when you mill it. And in this day, um, that was a, a something for exceptional people only, meaning exceptional in wealth. Uh, the archaeologists tell us that the common bread eaten in Egypt was flat bread. And that's what everybody ate. No leavening, not white bread. It was just the rough germ, rough wheat, uh, maybe milled, certainly probably crushed to some extent so it can interact with the other ingredients to make a bread. But a leavened bread was even more rare. So there was, like we think of leavened bread that's not white, that's probably not what they're thinking of. This would have been a very coarsely ground uh, type of a product, but, and, the, and probably, according to the people that have studied the things, was probably done by letting it set and ferment. Kind of like the sourdough processes that we have today where you mix the right things up and you set it aside, you take part of it, divide it up and start another fermenting process and all that. Um, my wife did that one time some years ago and the bread was really good for the first few months. But after a while, it's like, are we ever gonna get done with this? Well, no, because every time you make it, you take it. So anyway, but forget all that. So it, that's where leavening typically came from. A yeast leavened bread uh, was a later um, development as far as we know. And so the, the most everybody at all, most all levels, ate a lot of flatbread. Um, if you were somewhat wealthy, you might be able to employ your cooks and so on. One reason why you'd eat the flatbread is if you're doing your own cooking, you can start this morning and make bread today and you get it. If you're doing the, where if you want leavened bread, it takes days to get to the point that you're ready to have leavened bread. And so the wealthier might have leavened bread, but only the top of the crew is going to get the white bread because the white bread took so much effort in the milling process to separate out the the bran and the germ layers from the wheat and so when he says there were white breads and by the way these may not have been just bread they may have been cakes sweet breads whatever could have been all kinds of things that were baked goods but here's the rich high high end goods made in the oven baked uh, that would normally have come out of his charge when he was in charge of it on my head and so here are these in, in these things in verse 17 the top basket had all sorts of baked food for pharaoh and the birds were eating the food out of my basket joseph didn't hesitate well here's the interpretation the three baskets are three days and the baker's going okay this sounds pretty good so far but within three days Pharaoh will lift your head from you and will hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh off of your bones so that wasn't such a pleasing interpretation it's no wonder that Joseph didn't say oh by the way if you run into Pharaoh along the way to the gallows put in a word for me that probably wouldn't have been a very good idea but uh, so very different situation uh, in this case on the third day in verse 20 it says it was Pharaoh's birthday 
And he made a feast for all of his servants. And in this feast time, the jailer or the jail chief cupbearer and the chief baker um, is is lifted up. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. I don't know how much of this is speculation and how much is not, but reading in in some of the commentary information, uh, one of the things that's out there that people think was likely is that there was a probably an annual feast, maybe on the king's birthday, Pharaoh's birthday, for all the servants. And they believe at that time, you know, they would honor the servants. It was kind of like a an award ceremony, awards day. But one of the things that they very well may have done is, you know, read out all their names, including those that were under some level of penalty or judgment. And so the idea is when they read these guys' names, they may have even been prepared. Maybe people have been doing research into did they, you know, what was their crime? Was it real? Was it there? But uh, during this feast uh, that was in honor of his servants, um, these two men's names are, are brought up enough that he restored in verse 20 the cupbearer and verse 21 he's restored and so he's back in the position of being the holder of the cup. In verse 22 we see the baker was hanged just as Joseph expected in his interpretation. And verse 23 had to be a heartbreaker all over time for Joseph because he never hears back anything from Pharaoh's household as a result of his interpreting the dream to the cupbearer because in verse 23, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. And to me, that's on one hand phenomenal. I mean, this was had to be a huge amount of tension in the cupbearer's life to be in prison. Uh, we see from what happened to the baker what could have easily happened to him. And they have this dream that is unsettling. And Joseph gives him an interpretation that proves to be so accurate and so promising for his future that he's restored to his position and yet he forgot Joseph just forgot it wasn't that he ignored it or just didn't choose to he just forgot and I just I just find that phenomenal on one hand on the other hand I'm sad to say sounds just like me um, you know there have been people who are significant that I forget to pay attention to there have been situations where people have done so much for me and I move on and get busy and time goes by and years later, oh, I should have, I should have responded better or differently. I mean, honestly, I see myself so much in that statement and I think we can all easily find ourselves there if we're just not paying attention to what's really significant in life and we get all caught up in our own things and our own busyness I'm the world's worst at that, and uh, you know I, I'm I'm embarrassed by it, but it's the truth, and I'm I'm almost surprised we'll get into the to another part of this story with the cupbearer later, but uh, next time even. Uh, but he doesn't seem too embarrassed about it when the time comes that he does remember it. So so human um, are are these men and what happens here, and. I want to turn a page a little bit, and I'm going to run out of stuff today, and we'll just live with that. But um, I, as I was preparing and contemplating, I realized at some point we need to have a discussion about this. And, and, and when I look at what's coming up and so on, I thought, you know, this is really the right way to do it. And that's this whole idea of dreams. If you think of what we've studied through in Genesis, have dreams been an important part of what God has done to lead men through through this time that we've been studying? Give some order some examples of dreams you might recall from our study in Genesis. Put you on the spot. Make the teacher feel bad because nobody remembers what he said. <laughs> okay, Jacob's ladder, absolutely. 
And, you know, here's God. What did God reveal to Jacob in that? That angels are constantly doing his bidding. Okay. God is active in this world. What had Jacob just done before this? What was he doing? Let's go start there. What was he doing when this dream occurred? Running from his brother, running to his uncle Laban, his mother's family. Why? Find a wife. Now that we can, we when we go back and look, some of that looks like it was part of Rachel's way of. I'm uh, oh, sorry, Rachel and Rebecca. I keep doing that in my mind. That was Rebecca's way of making a good excuse for Joseph to take off. But at the same time, here's a true thing. They had their best success when wives for their family were chosen from the old country or the old family. Um, but here's a good question. Um, Jacob went through a lot in his conflict with Esau and even in deceiving his father and so on. And what was all that conflict and deception about? Birthright. birthright. And when we talk about birthright in the lineage of Abraham, we're not just talking about the typical inheritance extra-sized portion and becoming head of the family, we're also talking about the child of the promise. Who is the bearer of the promise that God made to Abraham that through his lineage, he would become a huge nation and all the nations of the earth would be blessed? Jacob gets affirmation by God at this point. I'm going to do these things for you. And he repeats the promises that makes it clear he's the child of the promise. What's another dream that Joseph we've studied? The one with the uh, sheaves of grain. Yes. Joseph had, had two dreams, right? And it clearly when he told his family about it, did he need somebody to interpret it? No, they got it right off, didn't they? No, we're not serving you. You silly, upstart, young whippersnapper. What do you think you're doing? That's not going to happen. And it seems like Joseph understood it, but, you know, okay. And he just keeps on telling his dreams. He doesn't really explain them. What are some other dreams that we've seen so far in the book of Genesis? Wasn't it the, the ruler? God told him not to touch Sarah when Abraham said, oh, this is my sister. That's an interesting one. Um, when the second time that Abraham tells the lie and says she's my sister and the ruler takes a special interest in her and he hasn't yet pursued her um, God gives him a dream hey you, uh, you haven't done anything inappropriate yet and I'm telling you don't touch her and you know he comes back to Abraham what are you doing and for good reason, you, you know, it, it set up a situation where this man could have been greatly cursed by God. But it's interesting that God would do that. Um, and so we see that one. Um, Jacob himself had another dream, didn't he? Yeah, way back he had one. Yeah, and, we, and that one's an interesting one was that really a dream or was that something more than a dream and I kind of think that was something more than a dream but it's interesting while he's under Laban's care the reason I say it was more than a dream let's go back and finish that thought the reason I say that was probably more than a dream was the language and that's there but the other thing is he wrestled with God wouldn't let him go until he blessed him and God touched his hip there's something physical going on here. That's, that one's one that, honestly, I'll talk for myself. This side of heaven, I don't think I'm really going to be able to fully understand what happened there. 
and who knows, maybe on maybe in heaven it won't seem to be important enough to find out about or have the ability to find out about. But I, I found it very interesting thinking about these dreams, the dream that Lab, that Jacob talked about when he went to his two wives out in the field and said, hey, I think it's time we left. Um, and goes through his discussion. One of the things he talks to them about is a dream he had where God showed him how that reproduction process with the goats and the sheep was going to work. And he saw it happening in a dream. And that dream, obviously, he hadn't told anybody about. He just had it, acted on it, and away he went. Um, could there be dreams where God interacted in the lives of people that aren't recorded in the Bible? Absolutely. Were there for sure? I don't know. Maybe God gave us every dream that happened. I don't know. But when we think about dreams, um, we wind up in an interesting place, don't we? Have you ever had a dream? Was it God talking to you? Probably not. Matter of fact, probably was maybe even just you talking to you about what you wanted. But when I looked in the, just did some looking at numbers, um, and um, using the New American Standard, so it could be using different words in other scriptures, so this doesn't necessarily mean it's all-inclusive, but in the Old Testament, there are 78 times we talk about a dream. And um, there are eight in the New Testament. And... I didn't spend a lot of time looking at trying to understand a lot about dreams in the Old Testament. Uh, some I can remember and think about, but I found the ones in the New Testament fascinating. Because when I looked at the New Testament, there were eight times that the word dream was mentioned. And out of those, there are only four or maybe five. There's one reference I can't tell you for sure if this is referring back to the same dream or a different dream about Joseph and coming back from Egypt. But if we just walk down through Matthew, and I, you don't, we don't have to read these, the first one's in Matthew chapter 1, where in a dream, God to Joseph says, take Mary as your wife. The child is of the Holy Spirit. There's another one in Matthew 2 that is a dream for the Magi, to avoid going back to see Herod on their way back to their own land. There's another one in chapter 2 where in the verse right after the previous dream, God also goes to Joseph in a dream and says, get to Egypt. Time to go to Egypt. So flee, that's the words. Also in chapter 2, they deal with the time in Egypt and say, okay, in verse 19, Joseph, it's time to return from Egypt. And then a few verses later, still in Matthew 2, as he's preparing to return to Jesus, turn to Judah, in a dream he's warned, no, don't go to Judah because of the, because the, the Herod that killed all the babies is dead, but the one that's taking over, the next Herod, is going to be hostile, and so he chooses to go to Galilee. So we have those four, if not five, dreams all in Matthew chapter 1 and 2. And then we get another dream mentioned, but it's of an entirely different flavor. In Matthew chapter 27, Jesus is on trial, and Pilate's wife says, don't have anything to do with this man, because I am suffering because of a dream I had about him. Now, was that a dream from God? Who knows? I mean, that was... That it doesn't tell us it came from God. And there are a couple of other references to dreams in the New Testament, but none about a specific dream or the message in a dream. Um, and I just found that fascinating that dreams played such a role in the birth and bringing up of Jesus and his location and then this other one with Pilate's wife at the time that he was on trial. Um, there are So that's six references. There were eight total. And um, I, I want to go, first of all, to Acts 2.17. 
Let's go there. Oops, too far. Acts 2.17. And I said 17. I want to set the stage before we read this. And really, we probably ought to read more than 17. Let's see here. Um... Oh, we'll read through 21, but before we read it, we need to understand when this is happening and what the context is. And in verse 4 of Acts 2, Peter stands up with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judah and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. These men are not drunk as you suppose, it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel. Now, I would imagine most of you have figured out this is the great sermon that Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. And this is what he starts with. Somebody read for us uh, 17 through 21. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out my spirit upon all mankind. When your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will have dreams. And even on my male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. And I will say, display one, and I will display wonders in the sky above, and the signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, so here's Peter talking about a prophecy from Joel that in the last days, this is what it's going to look like. Now, is that what it was looking like on that day? Were they seeing wonders in the sky and all this? What wonder had they just experienced? Fire above their heads. Well, the fire above their heads, that's for the people that, that for Peter and his friends in the 50, in the upper room, 50, 70. I'm sorry, my brain went goofy but that's what the the apostles and the people there experienced what did the crowd experience well the crowd experienced every man was hearing in his own language and it wasn't that there were 20 people or 30 people or 40 people all talking in different languages and so they were listening to the one they want to they were hearing what was going on each one all of these things in their own language and so there was a miracle of hearing going on, I believe. Maybe a miracle of tongue speaking as well. I don't know. But they say, oh, these folks are drunk with wine. Well, now they should have thought about that a minute. Okay. Who's hearing in their own language? I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't the people. I mean, yeah, the people were making a loud noise. That's what drew the crowd in, in their praising of God and so on. Um, so they saw that. But they, they were just as affected by hearing in their own language. But... As Peter is speaking, he said, you shouldn't be surprised amazing things are happening. Joel said amazing things are coming. And one of those amazing things is, in verse 17, your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Did he mean that nobody's dreaming tonight? And so people will start having dreams when they sleep at night? No, he's talking about God interacting with mankind in dreams. And so that is a part of how God does on occasion interact with mankind. And one reason that you might say, well, now wait a minute, weren't there some other dreams in the New Testament? When I read this verse, I see a division between dreams and visions. And so I looked, and like Peter, when the, basket, when the sheet's coming down with the unclean and clean animals, that's a vision according to the Word of God. When Paul is taken to Macedonia he sees the man in a vision so I didn't include those those seem to be different that's more of a waking thing when God puts something in front of somebody and they see it <clears throat> now you might be thinking by the way there are nine visions in the New Testament that I was able to find um, there's more references in that it talks about it 20 times but in terms of actual individual <clears throat> visions you say well that vision's in this verse the same as that vision over there uh, you'd be surprised how many times Peter talked about having a vision so he got counted 
There's a whole bunch of vision words with Peter, but it's all one vision. And, and so I separated those out. It just seemed to make sense to me to do that. There's also a warning in Jude 1.8 that men by pursuing their dreams will defile the flesh. Ooh, that's scary, isn't it? So what do we do with these dreams? There isn't any question when we read about one in the, new, in the, in the Bible. God gave him a dream to tell him what to do or to explain something or to put a question mark in his head. He didn't give the dream to the baker and the cupbearer so they would know. He gave them the dream so they would have a question mark and want to ask. But what about dreams today? And I think we've got to be very careful. Um, I have interacted with a lot of people with different views on the scriptures than I probably would have that say, well, God told me to go by this there, to call that person here. I'm like, how do, you, how do you sort out God telling you? I'm not saying God doesn't ever tell anybody anything, but there's so much of that that is the musings of our mind, and it's hard to sort it out. And I actually think one reason I wanted to talk about it today is this isn't a, a be-all, end-all, but these two men knew they had a dream that was important and significant. And I, I just think God's, if God's trying to talk to you, he's not going to make you wonder who's speaking. Is that a fair way of saying it? I think we can have some confidence in who God is and how he would talk to us. And when I look at all of the Bible and all of the people and all the people that God led, and the bulk of them never had a dream or a vision, they picked up God's word and read it. Look at Ezra. Transformed a whole nation because Ezra, Ezra got out the scrolls and read. And so God has given us so much that it would be rare that we need a dream or a vision to lead a life that is obedient to him. Yes, sir. Rick, could you say that like, this, this particular use of dreams is, is given from the Lord in order to fulfill his specific purposes well, for Joseph? This is really fascinating because if you want to look at where we're going, and like I've said a few times, I, I hate to borrow all of next time's message this time, but when you look at where we're going, and we can read these knowing where Joseph is going to wind up, and you start looking at the individual sovereign acts of God along the way, it's phenomenal. It starts with a dream for Joseph. And why did God give Joseph the dream? So that when he's in prison, he's going to go, oh, I'm not going to be here. It's good. No, because we can see Joseph is trying to take that into his own hands a little bit. Not, not in a sinful way. But I don't think that's it. Why do I think God gave Joseph the dream? Tick his brothers off. Because his next step in his plan was... The brothers are going to have an opportunity and take it to boot him out of the family. And not only that, God orchestrated this plan so that there's Ishmaelite traders coming down the road to cart him off to Egypt, which is what? Where God wants him. And not only that, he winds up in Potiphar's house. And God uses the lustful advances of Potiphar's wife to get justice for Joseph? No, to get injustice for Joseph that he'd be thrown in jail so he could interpret a couple of guys' dreams so that we'll see some years later when Pharaoh has a dream, one of those folks remembers, hey, wait a minute. There was this Hebrew guy and that begins the path of Joseph's ascent. And was God dependent upon these things? No, God wasn't dependent upon these things happening. God planned these things to happen and made sure they happened. When God gave Joseph the dream, did he know Joseph's path to be important in Pharaoh's world? Absolutely. He knew exactly how it was going to happen. And so... Um, I would say that, that even relates to if God gives you or me a dream, 
He's only going to do that because that's his sovereign plan and we're going to know it. Now, we may not know what God's intended effect is. I mean, it doesn't look like Joseph was in on the big plan. He, he wasn't in on it. He was just living it out, being a faithful servant along the way. Uh, but, it, but the dreams are interesting, and I just thought it was worthwhile to stop and take a little bit of time and say, so what's up with dreams? And they're rare. And when God gives us a dream, I don't think we're going to have any question about it or any wonderment about it. We'll know that God is moving us in some direction. He places something on our heart. He might do it through a testimony. He might do it through a whole lot of things. One way he could do it, but seems like it's extremely rare is through a dream. Questions, comments, thoughts? I guess in bringing up that question, I was thinking about like categories of <laughs> dreams. So in my mind, it seems similar to like the gift of tongues, for instance. Like the gift of tongues, in our view, was a specific gift given for a specific purpose at a specific point in time. And so like, in my mind, I was just trying to reconcile, like, are they, are they similar, like, in, in gifting? So God gives these, these dreams and interpretations of dreams to these particular people at these particular points in time. It's not something that we should be, like, necessarily searching no, for I, or looking no, and I would agree with you. It's not something to pursue. Now, I just need to be transparent. Uh, when you say we believe it was for a particular point in time and so on, um, I, I do think that prophecy of Joel, I mean, we, we know there's going to be a time coming when the great manifestations of God through the tri great tribulation, at least, are going to be poured out. Will there be speaking in tongues again? I, I just don't think there's anything in the scripture that says that can never revi be revived. I haven't seen anything, and, I, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody here, but just to be clear about my understanding of what I see in the scripture, I haven't seen anything in the modern time that I would say, yeah, that's a biblical application of a gift that God gave us speaking in tongues. But I'm certainly not going to say that it couldn't happen. Um, and I'm particularly not going to say it as we watch the events of the world. And I mean, every generation has thought, oh, my goodness, we're, we're, sneak, we're banging right into the prophecies of the end times. Um, and certainly it seems that way to me in many respects. But yet time has marched on. So is this really the end times? I, I wouldn't go that far to say I know it is. But I, I do think as we get to those times, the kinds of things that you see described in the book of Revelation in the Great Tribulation are going to be phenomenal. And, um, and I think speaking in tongues might well, be, might well be included in that list. Because I just don't, I can't find those words in the scripture that say, it's going to quit and will never happen again. So with that said, though, I, 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 I would see, see this interpretation I don't know if I would call it a spiritual gift because it never gets listed in the gift. I mean, the interpretation listed in the gifts is the gift of translating speaking in tongues. But clearly, this is a gift from God um, that to Joseph in this story today that he could hear this and know what the interpretation was. And I think a big piece of that is out of the box, he said, interpretation belongs to Jehovah. And so he's not taking personal credit for it. One of the key giveaways to people that I don't, that I don't begin by trusting is when they draw attention to themselves with some spiritual thing. I interpret dreams. I do this. I just like, Ugh. no, you don't, not if it came from God. You might be the instrument God uses to do that, but when you start saying, I do it and I did it, it's my gift and I'm important and you should come to me, and I'm like, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't trust that very far because that's not God honoring like Joseph did here. Okay, I'm rambling. Any other questions or comments? Yes, sir. Yeah, Rick, just a couple of comments. Uh, we're actually living in a time where uh, people are claiming direct revelation from God. Very common. Very common. And, uh, evangelicalism at large, the church at large, and uh, so 
have to be very careful in regards to direct revelation God told me. If God told you, then God, you can say, thus saith the Lord. It's actually direct revelation. He claimed it is as valid as Scripture. Mm-hmm. That's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Really dangerous. Yes. Uh, another example of dreams or visions, which is rampant in the church, would be Jesus calling. Oh, calling. yeah. I mean, uh, that's common. That's just one instance of what's occurring in the church today. The deception is rampant. And so we need to be very, very careful about this kind of thing. I think it's uniquely interesting that dreams basically almost disappeared in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. You just, you just yeah, it just kind of... Once you got we Jesus... Don't have, we don't have a need for that. And the reason we don't is the first chapter of Second Peter... In verse 16, Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, and we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. But when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention to as the lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning stars, morning star rises in your hearts. So this, first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, but no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter is saying, James, John, and I were at the Mount of Transfiguration. We heard the very voice of God. We saw the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. We saw it. But this word is more sure than what we saw. Yeah. So what we have today is we have the written revelation of God. The total, completed revelation of God. Peter saying that is more sure and more sufficient than anything else. In dream, any vision, anything you experience, we have something more sure than that. That's the word of God. So anything that we would see or someone would say has to come under the authority of the word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jesus, I, Jesus yeah. told me this, or Jesus called this, or gave me this vision, has to come under the authority of the word. The word has primacy. Yeah, I, I would I would I would agree with that. And and you can add Paul's own words in First Corinthians about I didn't come to you with anything flowery. I came to you with something very simple. Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead according to the scriptures. And so, I mean, uh, you know, does, is God still providential today? Yes, he's still providential. He leads us through life uh, in ways where he wants a particular outcome. He's going to get it. We probably just won't have the chance to see it see his specific work that gets us there but um yeah no that's that's a that's a very good way to cap that off dave i appreciate that any other comments what's the difference between a dream and a vision i think what i see in the scripture is the difference between the dream and a vision is one is you're asleep and the other one you're awake and conscious that's that's what i saw when i was looking through these passages the, the one that gets hard to put all together is when Jacob wrestles with God. That one, I think, has got so much more in it than I'll ever be able to pick out and understand and figure out. But uh, the one I'm aware of, there's probably others I would have trouble working my way through as well. Well, and, and right, I have not. I have studied Revelation. I haven't studied the point. I've got everything cemented in my head where I could start talking about it. 
But one of the clear things that is in the book of Revelation and is in other warnings in the New Testament is in the end times there will be many false messiahs. There will be many people coming and doing signs and wonders and people saying, here's the Messiah, don't go, is basically what the New Testament tells us. Because we're, there's gonna, Satan is going to mimic the signs and wonders that were seen at the time of Jesus and in the end times as well. So what's the safe, sure thing in all of it? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he, he is the propitiation for my sins. I am saved by grace through faith, not of myself, but as a gift of God. I can't boast about it. Kind of stealing from Ephesians 2, 8, 9 there. And so the safe thing is, I'm not going to some other idea or some other person or some other teaching to cement my salvation. My salvation is cemented in my faith in Christ. Jesus, I trust you. If there's something you want me to do, I trust you to take me there. I trust you to give me the wisdom, James 2 promises it, to see through all of these things that are going on in the world, James 2. James 1 promises it. So anyway, let's pray. We need to, we're, we've used our time. Father, you are gracious to us. We know we can trust you. And Lord, it's interesting to think about things like dreams and speaking in tongues and uh, you're directing our life in ways beyond the scriptures. But Lord, most of all, we just want to not be taken aside by those things, but to realize that you are a trustworthy, sovereign God. And if we trust you, put our faith in you and rely on you for wisdom uh, and you will make our path straight. And so, Lord, we look forward to that day by day, hour by hour. Uh, Lord, as your own son taught us to pray, lead us away from evil and away from temptation. And, Lord, we, we do trust you to do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.